0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we had great fun on last week's program, Uh, quoting from Andy Borowitz's Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumb and Dumber. Uh, We can't recommend this book to you highly enough if you uh, enjoy a good laugh at the expense of politics and politicians. And uh, when it comes to politics and politicians, I think you really have to laugh or you have to cry. But I would note at the end of the book, uh, Borowitz does get sort of serious about uh, (laughs) our current situation, in particular the anti-democratic efforts currently uh, flooding the country said Borowitz. So what can we do about their attempts to kill democracy? Write angry comments on Facebook? Watch the cable TV host whose sarcastic monologues we always agree with? Or will we fight to save our democracy using the tools of our democracy and flood the zone with votes? What's the alternative? Borowitz notes that the minute you get into an argument online, the other side automatically wins because you're expending energy that could have been applied to political activities that are productive and not just symbolic. He said obsessively watching cable news, checking Twitter, or monitoring the latest polls, all of which he said I've been guilty of, makes us feel like we're staying informed. But to what end? He added, when I do these things, I'm just a passive observer rooting for my team. There's a difference between going to a Super Bowl party and playing for the Super Bowl. Only those who do the latter affect the outcome of the game. He urges us to roll up our sleeves, get to work on the local level, and organize. Register people to vote. Get out the vote. Go to town meetings. And maybe the most challenging task of all, try to change people's minds one voter at a time. He asks, how long will it take to repair the wreckage of the age of ignorance? Unfortunately, he said there's no quick fix. We have to be patient. But you know who's been super patient? The Kochs. They've worked for decades to affect change on the local level with special emphasis on state houses and the judiciary. Now we're all living in the Kochs world and it's on fire. Borowitz queries, now it would be reasonable for you to ask, would all the arduous effort proposed have prevented any of the ignoramuses in this book from being elected? Well, the answer is yes. We probably still would have stuck with Reagan and Quayle since their tickets won by landslides, but we might have been spared the devastation wreaked by two of the worst presidents in U.S. history, George W. Bush and Donald J. Trump. Had a few thousand votes in battleground states gone the other way in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have won. A mere 537 votes in one state, Florida, separated George W. Bush and Al Gore in 2000. Still not convinced that organizing on a local level can make a big difference? Well, consider this. I've heard that a community organizer can go really far in politics. Now that Barack Obama is essentially a superhero in his own cinematic universe, it's easy to forget that when he first ran for president, his campaign was a long-shot insurgency. Anyway, it's an election year, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to talk a little bit about politics as we go along. We are recording this just before the Iowa caucuses, so we're not going to be able to say anything about uh, the outcome there. But uh, you can bet your ass we will in the future. I mean, the near future. And along the way, we think it will be impossible to resist weighing in on the issue of whether Donald J. Trump stinks to high heaven. (laughs) And we're not talking metaphorically here. We're talking about odor, Since we're starting out here on a literary and sort of philosophical note, I think I will continue in that vein just a little bit longer by quoting from a guy we have undying admiration for, which is Isaac Asimov. I'm holding in my hand his book, The Secret of the Universe, uh, written—actually, many of the essays in it were written in 1990, which is a surprise to me because I know that Asimov passed away that same year, but I guess right up to the very end, he was penning um, some insightful essays— So what I think I'll do is quote from his introduction to that uh, distinguished book, or at least excerpt from it. Said Isaac Asimov, like all writers, I have trouble with reviews. I find myself unable to resist reading reviews of my books, and I find myself absolutely furious with anything less than an unalloyed rave. I put the matter to my good friend Lester Del Rey, a man of infinite principle. He said, Isaac, never read reviews. If you find you must, then at the first unpleasant adjective, tear it up and throw it away, said Asimov. How I wish I had the strength of mind. A short time ago, I received a review of one of my latest collections of essays, of which this book is the most recent example. I would not ordinarily have seen it, for it appeared in a British newspaper in Sri Lanka. However, my good friend Arthur C. Clarke was huddled over the fire, gumming his gruel, and he came across it. In a fever of agony over the possibility that I might not see it, he carefully clipped it out and mailed it to me. Only the fact that I am a most forgiving man prevents me from hiring some ruffian to go to Sri Lanka and poison the gruel of his. The review began, this is a book that should never have been written. Dear me, that activated Del Rey's law and meant that the review should now be torn up and thrown away. I did that, but not before I scanned it quickly to see why it should never have been written. I gathered that what bothered the reviewer was the book was a collection of miscellaneous essays on various subjects, hopping freely from one to the other. Apparently, he thought that had been unconscionable, although he was obviously ignorant of the fact that I have written nearly 40 essay collections, mostly but not quite entirely, on science, and every one of them dealt with a miscellany of subjects among which I bounced about joyously. What does he expect? I have written, as part of this series and of others, a matter of 600 essays or more which have been collected in those 40 books. And how can that be done unless I write on a wide variety of subjects? So, the devil with the reviewer. Here's another example. Recently, I published a large history of science entitled Asimov's Chronology of Science and Discovery. It was reviewed by an anonymous reviewer, and the first phrase was, The man who knows too much. That activated Delray's law, and I tore up the review and threw it away. But I kept thinking about the phrase, how can I know too much? What does a reviewer find offensive about my, quote, knowing too much, unquote? And actually, the remark is not true. I do happen to know a good deal about all the sciences and most of the humanities. But in the more prosaic fields of human endeavor, I fall short. For instance, I imagine that the reviewer can watch a football game or a basketball game on television and understand its every move. To me, it's all chaotic pandemonium. I imagine he can chug-a-lug a stein of beer like an expert. I get faint at the odor. I bet he can play poker like a dream and maybe can shoot a snappy game of craps. Well, I can't. It's precisely the abilities I lack, in which the reviewer perhaps possesses in possesses abundance, that the American public finds admirable. To be familiar with the, the sciences and the humanities is, if I may trust some of the movies I've seen, the mark of a nerd, And such a person is greeted with amusement, and it would almost seem contempt. Most people then would feel, I ought to be pitied for knowing too little about the things that really count. And what are the things that don't count? Well, a recent study has shown that American students have, in 18 years, failed to advance their abilities to read and write. A large fraction simply could not read or write or think back in 1972, and they cannot do any better in 1990. The study blames this on one, too much television, two, not enough books, magazines, and newspapers in the home, and three, not enough homework. To cure this distressing situation, the study recommends that parents involve themselves more with what their children are doing. Really? Surely in a world that thinks I know too much, parents are not going to suspect their children of knowing too little. As a matter of fact, I don't think most parents can read, write, or think any better than their kids can or that they believe it is in any way important that they do so. Incidentally, one part of the study seems to have been that of asking children to answer questions that would test their values and way of thinking. One child, in answer to the question, what would you consider a good job, answered as follows. A good job is one in which I don't have to work, and I get paid a lot of money, said Asimov. When I heard that, I cheered and yelled and felt that he should be given an A+. For he had perfectly articulated the American dream of those who despise knowledge. What a politician that kid will make. So here I am, stuck. I want people to know things. I want them to understand. I want them to be able to run the world and enjoy the universe. I've spent my whole life trying to explain the sciences and the humanities to them. I've reached several hundred thousand people, I know. It isn't much. The vast majority remain untouched, but every soul saved from the burning is a soul won for the light. Last week, believe it or not, I got a letter from Iran telling me I was Iran's favorite science writer. Well, if I can reach even Iran, well, how wonderful. I don't really know too much despite what the silly reviewers said. Actually, I don't know enough even about the subjects I'm acquainted with. But what I do know, I want others to know as well. Mr. McMillan takes issue with this. He believes that Isaac Asimov probably reached several millions of people, and to that I say, well, I certainly hope so, sir. He has been an inspiration uh, to this program, which does try and educate folks about things that we know about and we think you should know about. Sadly, we're pretty confident that we have not reached millions of people and probably not even reached hundreds of thousands of people, and possibly even over 20 years have not reached tens of thousands of people. But maybe we have. I hope so. We talked on last week's program about how we were going to try and be more optimistic. And then wouldn't you know it, by the time the show was over, we hadn't managed to get there. So let's make a concerted effort today, dig out some items that are or can be seen in a, uh, a positive light. All right, let's delve into AI, a subject which has not always fared well on this program. We have felt that it's our duty to point out some of the negative sides of uh, that area of big tech. But that said, there there, there, are, there are numerous little uh, silver linings in what we think of as a cloud, starting with the fact that A.I. has evidently uh, brought back John Lennon's vocals and allowed the Beatles, in a manner of speaking, to put together their final song. The deal is, as you may have noted a few months back, that um, John Lennon had recorded himself at home playing the piano back in 1979. And uh, unfortunately, it was really noisy tape, lots of background noise. Uh, some years later, George Harrison worked on adding some tracks to it, and they called off the whole endeavor because just the, the sound quality was, was too poor. But thanks to AI, they were able to go in and clean it up. Afterwards, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr got together and in, in that manner completed the four Beatles in terms of contribution to the song. Evidently, in creating this new song, Now and Then, the engineers uh, that worked on it took 60 hours of recording captured by a single microphone that picked up the musician's instruments in a noisy jumble. The mic also caught background chatter and made much of the recording just unusable. But the team using AI separated the dialogue from the other noises, also isolated the sound of each instrument being played, which is pretty interesting. I do know that many, many decades ago, the technology existed through computers to uh, put a microphone in a room, record all the sounds of all the people talking, and then later focus on what one individual was saying. Now, some years back, you may recall the Beatles, quote-unquote, released a song titled Free as a Bird. And back at that time, Radio Parallax uh, decided to take a look at uh, this entire endeavor, we put a call into quote Sir Paul McCartney, unquote, formerly of the Beatles. Sir Paul, are you there?
1: Yes, I'm here, Doug. We you know I'm here on the, on the phone with you. Yes, how are you doing today?
0: Well, we're doing fine. We had an allegation that uh, our David Rosenblum had obtained some bootleg tapes that would shed some light on the breakup of the Beatles in late '69, and, and I guess this has prompted your call. We're quite stunned.
1: Well, yes, you know, I'd heard about that, you know, what happened, about the tape, and, and I just, you know, I got to set the record straight. You know, I, I mean, what happened was, a long time ago, we had, um, you know, we had the Beatles playing, jamming, you know, uh, it was just an amazing jam session, we were doing it for two and a half hours, all of a sudden, who sh- shows up? Elvis Presley shows up. Wow, Elvis. I mean, out of the blue. Wow. We hadn't seen him since, 64, know, it was amazing. But, you know, we're jamming with him for a while, you know, and then all of a sudden we get to knock on the door, beep, beep, blah blah. You know who it is? Jimi Hendrix. I,
0: I, You're telling us Jimi Hendrix and yes. Elvis jam with the Beatles?
1: I know, it's hard to believe, but, you know, he, so we're jamming with him. He has a spot of tea and starts jamming on guitar. Elvis is singing. We're playing back up, and all of a sudden, who knocks on the door? Bob Dylan. Wow. I mean, it was the amazing— Well, this is amazing. quite an
0: amazing jam session. It would
1: have been the ultimate uh, 60s artifact. Well,
0: what what happened to that uh, that— that session. But
1: well, bloody hell, you know what happened? John, because of Yoko, erased the tape.
0: He, erased, mean, he erased the tape? I
1: was, I was bloody. Really, what really what, was, at John,
0: what was. And that hit, led to the was,
1: breakup. That was the beginning of the end of the Beatles.
0: I guess so. What was her reasoning?
1: But well, Yoko got it into John's head that the thing to do was not to release the greatest jam of all time, but no, why don't we release Three Hours of Silence? I mean, bloody hell, you know, we're going to release three hours of nothing, you know, we're going to call it the blank album.
0: I guess that does sound like Yoko a bit.
1: So her reasoning was, oh, well, you know, the audience can picture it in their minds, you know, it's, it's 1969, why don't we just let them, you know, picture it and we'll do something experimental or we'll reap loads of money, you know. Oh, sure, a lot of people would buy a blank album, bloody hell. Come on.
0: Well, I don't see the reasoning.
1: So I've been looking for the, you know, the bleeding tape ever since then, you know, and we haven't been able to find it. I thought David had one, but no. It's all a big hoax. No one has. It's well, been da- erased.
0: Well, David, well, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. D- David did have, uh, maybe I can play for you. Maybe you can authenticate. I don't know about this 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 session with uh, Dylan, but he claims he's got to tape an original version of Birthday that Yoko was trying to to get issued.
1: Are you going to play that now?
0: I will. Could you, could you verify whether this is legitimate? Let
1: me hear it first.
0: All right, hold on. We're going to cue that up.
1: we destroyed every existing copy of that
0: so this is legitimate
1: I don't believe I just heard that again I had to go through the torture. Yes, it, it, it is legitimate, but you know, we, we thought we had destroyed them all. Well, so what you're telling apparently not, but I hope you're not going to. What don't you're telling? do try to release that one, you know, because Well, we're, our we're, agent,
0: we're, our, we're, agent we're, our agent David Rosenblum, apparently then does possess actual Beatles material. You know, he'll
1: be the late agent David. Rosenblum. <laughs> if, you know, if, if we have anything to do with it, you know. But,
0: well, we'll caution David to proceed with. I mean, this uh,
1: whole thing reminds me of the whole breakup. It's so sad, you know, because you know, I mean, Yoko was just all over John's mind, posing in his mind with all sorts of weird you know three hours of bloody silence come on you can't release that as an album i mean can you imagine if Yoko had been there in the early days it wouldn't uh-huh. have been it would have been it wouldn't have been twisted shout it would have been twisted shriek <laughs> it wouldn't we wouldn't have had help it would have been yelp <laughs> yeah it would have been hysterical mystery tool i mean come on you know you, eight days of primal screaming you know i mean it would have been a different band we wouldn't have made it you know so I mean, you can see why we broke up. You know, so but
0: I guess I there's really no love lost between you and Yoko Ono.
1: There's not, you know. There's even been talk of a reunion tour, having Yoko filling John's spot. No way in hell <laughs> is I'm going to do that. But I'll tell you what, there is some good news on the horizon. I want to share with you. Please do. That we do have an anthology full CD coming out soon over in the states, and uh, really? we're really proud of that. We- yeah.
0: And well, how, how does how did that come it's about? It's going
1: to feature two new songs again, two new reunion really? songs. Really?
0: You from, you you mean there still is some existing material well, from John uh, Lennon? On,
1: well, in a way, I mean the other two songs. Remember, we you know in the anthology one through three, we released two new brand new Beatles yes. songs for the first time it's in quite years. Quite exciting. You know, using John's voice. Free as a bird. We did yes, and we did uh-huh. the backup. You know for that. Uh huh. But um, you know we're going to do two new songs based on John's outgoing answer machine tape. <laughs> And we're ve- well, very those, proud of it. Well, those and it the first one, the first thing is going to be called, I Call You Right Back. <laughs> and the second one called, I'm Not Home Right Now. <laughs> you know, we're really proud of it. We, we're looking well, forward to releasing that. We
0: are certainly looking forward to hearing well, those ourselves. Yeah, I
1: really have to go. I have to get back over, you know, to uh, my new girlfriend. But I'll talk to you soon. All maybe right. another time.
0: Well, we hope that you will. Sir Paul McCartney, thank you for coming on the show. Oh,
1: well, you're bloody welcome.
0: You know, Mr. Miller, we really do need to get Sir Paul McCartney back on this program. I hear he's got not too much to do now. No, probably not. And, you know, doggone it, it's just just as easy for us as making a call to Los Angeles and speaking with our good friend, uh, Dr. Donald Rose, who in our alternate universe is a sort of avatar for the former Beatle. Since we're talking about music at this point, um, Mr. Mildred, maybe you can come up with something that would be appropriate for this item. Well, you got close with that one. The article in question, which I just held up, is titled Don't Fear the Beaver, which is not quite the same as the blue oyster cult classic Don't Fear the Reaper. What about this one? No, again, not Leave It to Beaver. The title of the article is Don't Fear the Beaver. Now it's funny. The article in question here is something I put aside from New Scientist magazine in 2007, but it's been in the news of late because it's catching on that beavers are a good thing. I believe they recently airlifted a bunch of beavers into the UK. They parachuted them in to certain areas, which I, you know, I, I...
1: any pictures of that?
0: Well, unfortunately, I I, I don't have any pictures of it. I, I don't I don't even know how to envision beavers as paratroopers. But I, I guess it worked, and they were able to put a lot of these large rodents uh, out into the wilderness where they need to be, and they can set, uh, set to work doing what beavers do, which is lop down trees and uh, back up rivers into beaver ponds. Now, it turns out, as we reported on this program, I think many times over the years, uh, beaver ponds are a really good thing. They, they basically slow down the flow of water and allow it to trickle into the, uh, the aquifer, and create a rich habitat for all sorts of diverse animals to live in. We told the story, which I will only briefly uh, mention again, about uh, yours truly climbing into a beaver lodge in the American River. And quickly climbing out when I encountered Mama Beaver eyeing me. So you kind of did fear the beaver. <laughs> well, by God, i you're right, I did. But under normal circumstances, most of us should not. Fear the beaver, which does a hell of a good job in restoring habitat. And there's a great effort around the world right now to do more of that, and we want to cheer it on. That's that's a great idea. Yay. You know, I just shudder to think of of how many beavers were turned into hats by fur companies uh, in North America uh, back in the day. I think that they just wiped out vast numbers of them. I, I think that uh, in California there. Uh, they're around. I, I know they're around because I climbed into their lodge, but there are not that many of them. and, and they're, they, But by God, they are making a comeback thanks to some, uh, some friends of the uh, furry critters. Mr. William really hastens to add that he's always, always been a friend of the beaver. And in another story related to habitat, we uh, noted we have a piece that was taking a look back at uh, the experiment, if you want to call it that, uh, the social experiment over lawns. You may have noticed, uh, dear listener, that as you walk through certain neighborhoods, you will find that these patches of carpet, astroturf, as it were, pretending to be a lawn. Now, there are no doubt a lot of lazy people out there that just hate the idea of having actual soil (laughs) with with insects and worms in it and things like that, and, you know, places where water to percolate into the ground, and it's all so messy to, to folks like that. They'd just much rather have a carpet in their front yard. And the fact is, this sort of idiocy was encouraged by various water agencies that pointed out how much water we would save if you weren't watering your lawn. The undated article that I'm referring to that uh, looked into all this pointed out that the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, a giant water wholesaler providing water to Los Angeles, and more than two dozen other cities, counties, and water districts, poured $300 million into lawn rebate programs from 2014 on, and removed five square miles of lawn. Of course, we talked on this program, uh, I think last year, about how it was that down in Southern California, golf courses, of which there are hundreds, routinely use millions of gallons of water to keep their, uh, their fairways nice and green the way golfers like them. The question we've always asked to water people is, If you save all that water and you keep it in the reservoir, isn't that just a way you can then ship it south and promote more real estate development? And of course, the answer to that is yes, that and plant more water-thirsty crops down in the San Joaquin Valley. So in fact, the water savings is something of an illusion. Of course, all this is going to be lost on you if you're the sort of person that imagines that uh, economic growth is, is always good and something that, should be promoted. We've quoted, we've quoted David Attenborough previous in this program, and one of the more memorable quips of his, which to paraphrase slightly, is that those who believe in, in unlimited growth in a world of finite resources are either insane or economists. Try not to be negative here, so, so let's just point out the fact that uh, you don't have to put in an AstroTurf lawn. And there of course are now questions about the chemicals that are in astroturf lawns. And that's a topic for another day. Yeah, let's let's do the just, just do a jujitsu move on this. If you if you don't take those steps that'll keep more water in California's reservoirs, you will in essence be slowing down the sad economic catastrophe overtaking the state in in its overdevelopment. And it's hard to think of a good news item as coming from the obituary column. But you know what? We do want to celebrate the life of someone who passed away a few years back, which was Herman Daly. He passed away in November of 2022 at age 84. He was described as perhaps the best known ecological economist and faulted his mainstream peers for failing to account for the environmental harm growth can bring piece by Ed Shannon in the New York Times said, Herman Daly, who for more than 50 years argued that the economic gospel of growth as synonymous with prosperity and progress was fundamentally and dangerously flawed because it ignored its associated costs, especially the depletion of natural resources and the pollution it engendered, died in Richmond, Virginia at age 84. Although he was branded a heretic for his theories, or worse, ignored among traditional economists, He had plenty of adherents who saw him as a prophet for anticipating climate change's increasingly harmful impact and the vast sums of money needed to address it. His ideas are really relevant now, unlike most other economists whose ideas tend to lose relevance as time passes and circumstances change, said Peter Victor, an ecological economist and the author of the 2021 biography, Herman Daly's Economics for a Full World. One of Daly's key principles was the growth is uneconomic when its costs outweigh its benefits. That idea was tied to another. Earth, once empty, is now full of people and what they produce. And charting a more sustainable path requires the use of fewer natural resources and the making of less waste. To which we would editorial add at, at this point, and the making of fewer people. But if there's one thing out there that liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans, of people of every stripe from all over the world, especially economists, can agree upon, is that there really is no need to limit the world's population of human beings. Therefore, nothing need be done about it. Well, we're here in the spirit of Isaac Asimov to tell you that that is baloney. And in the spirit of Andy Borowitz, so as to you know, what we can do as individuals to make things better, I have a piece here about uh, avoiding single-use containers. I'm not sure which publication this came from, but um, in it the question was asked, I I carry a small tote bag with reusable plastic carry-out containers when I go to restaurants. It is much better than getting single-use containers for leftovers, which is a hell of a good idea. The writer of the question, someone from Michigan, added, maybe you could suggest this in your column and help cut down on waste. Well, we're mentioning it here in Radio Parallax. We think that's a great idea. The author of the answer to this question, titled Ms. Green, said, Fight back with reusables. Try light, leak-proof stainless steel containers by U-Conserve and Eco Lunchbox or dishwater-safe, BPA-free recycled plastic options from Preserve. Well, Mr. Merlin, I think we should start doing that. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, channeling the voice of the late Herman Daly.